Welcome to Fast Friends Podcast, my podcast where I attempt to make friends with my guests in less time than it takes to hear Olivia Rodrigo twice on a Top 40 radio station. My name is Logan Cummins, and I'll be your host. Today, my guest is a writer, an actor, a comedian. You may know him as Coach Dick Novak from AP Bio. Everyone give a warm Fast Friends welcome to Charlie McCracken. Charlie, welcome to the show. Hi, Logan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Make yourself at home. While you and I are not great friends... We absolutely have known each other in the past. So it's probably about 10 plus years ago that we worked together. Yeah, we shared office space for sure. We absolutely did. I don't want people digging up the past on the internet and calling me a liar. So I want to make sure people are aware. Charlie and I have met before, but we haven't really stayed in touch. Obviously, we're doing very different things. So I'm still going to give it my best to win your stamp of approval by the end of the show. Well, I am uh, picky and choosy. So we'll see how it goes. I'm Logan Cummins. I'm a former pro wrestling creative, a mediocre stand-up comedian, and a ranch-dressing aficionado who lives beyond my means. This is my weekly podcast where I set out to make friends with each and every one of my guests. Sometimes it works. Other times, not so much. I typically start each episode by asking people, again, and this may be a little skewed given that we have known each other in the past, but what are three things that just off of the first like 30, 45 second interaction or like seeing pictures or whatever that you think we may have in common? You're more of a fan of wrestling, but I have a newly invigorated fandom of wrestling, professional wrestling. I love that. We have a a background in marketing and advertising. We fight the battle of the bulge. We've got that in common. (laughs) Yes, we do. (laughs) Yeah, I've lost that battle the last year for sure. Well, it was an uphill battle. (laughs) For sure. I think it just always helps to kind of like see if there's some common ground to start from. So the way that this works, Charlie, is like, don't think of it like I'm interviewing you. It's very candid and informal. To liken it to your onset days, it's basically like when a teacher pairs you up with another student for a group project and you're forced to spend time with them, except at the end, you'll get a say because I'll basically be asking you to decide if we could be good friends or not. Okay. So I've got to have that running in the back of my head. You got to think about that the whole time. Like every single misstep that I make, I don't know like where you start people. I used to have a professor in college that started people at a C. He said nobody started with an A. He didn't think that that was fair. So he would start you at a C and then like you would have to do exceptional work to move up from a C. C was like his sort of starting ground. And then obviously if you did terribly, he would move you lower than a C. So it's your grading scale. Ultimately, it's in your hands. I always wondered about that. Teachers always said you have an A to start with and that you can only lose your A. And that seemed like not true ever because as soon as you had an assignment, that was your grade. I don't understand how that worked. I agree. Yeah, I like that this guy, I guess I like that he was like upfront about it, but he was also like the biggest asshole professor. I mean, I went to like a really small liberal arts school, you know, so he was like big dick in a small pond, essentially. (laughs) I ended up dropping his class, actually. Like we just did not get along. I hope he hears this and he's doing well now, but uh, I would actually start him at a D. (laughs) What was the small liberal arts college? It was called the College of Mount St. Joseph. It's now called Mount St. Joseph University. They went through a rebrand, which I know, (laughs) given our marketing backgrounds, you will appreciate. It was a great school. It was on the west side of Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh, cool. This will tell you how small it was. I was a communication and English double major, and there was one class that he was the only professor that taught it, and it was a requirement to get the English major. So I 
just dropped out of the English double major and only got a communication degree. I was like that one course shy of the English double major because of him. You avoided that one man. Absolutely. I even tried to like do a summer course that was a comparable course at University of Cincinnati and they wouldn't take the transfer credit in. They were like, no, you have to take it with said professor. Talk about a gatekeeper. He retired shortly after I left. So, um, I mean, I guess maybe I could go back now and get it. Just pick up that one class. I don't want to rehash that. Under a cloud of scandal. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I roll. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining. Like I said, we'll just kind of jump right in. I want to get to know a little more about you and what your life was like. So I'm just going to jump right into life stuff. If I remember correctly, you grew up in Wisconsin. That's right. So my memory is okay. I mean, Wisconsin's a great state, but I'd love to hear like firsthand how it was for you growing up there. Sure. I grew up in a town called Stanley. It is off of Highway 29. It's about halfway between Wausau and Eau Claire. It's a small town of like 2,000 people. I think we moved there when I was one year old or less than a year old, and I lived there through high school. Were you like the same house and everything? No. My dad was uh, a, he worked at the bank and we lived in town for the first few years until I think in like fourth grade, we moved to another house for a couple of years because the bank that he worked for is being sold. And he wasn't sure if he was going to keep his job when the new owners of the bank came in. So he sold our house one day without telling us about it. He wanted to be able to move oh, fun. more quickly. Yeah, my mom and I answered the door. The doorbell rang and we went and answered the door and there were people who were coming to look at our house because my dad had put it on the market. What? <laughs> and you had no idea? No, we didn't know. That's how my mom found out about it. And then we moved just a couple of blocks over for two years. And then they moved us out into the country where we lived for the rest of the time there. So you stayed there all the way through high school, though? Yeah, they lived there until about the year 2000 when I moved to Chicago. They moved out of that small town just south of Wausau, which is right in the center of the state. Was it like a small school and stuff? You had the same classmates all the way through? That's what mine was like. Yeah, absolutely. I had a the school district is the town of Stanley, which is 2,000 people or so, and the village of Boyd, which is next door, that is like 650 people. So it's the Stanley Boyd School District. Uh, in elementary school, I went through the Catholic school in Stanley. So first through fifth grade, I was in Catholic school. And then I joined the public school, which was kindergarten through 12th in one building. Did you know kids from the public school or did you come in like at a deficit to the public school because you had been with the private kids from kindergarten to grade five? No, we know most everybody in town because it was such a small town. We'd meet all the other kids to play basketball or at the parks or whatever. So everybody knew we were just the Catholic kids and they were the public school kids. There's lots of interrelations between all these families and stuff anyway. I think it would be interesting to work for a bank like in a town of that size because you would know how much money everybody has. Or doesn't have. Yeah. I've always wondered about that. In that small town, and it was a small farming community, you know, mostly dairy farms and things like that. Uh, it had originally been a logging town, and then it, uh, it was all farms. And my dad worked there in the, you know, the 80s during the farming crisis and the savings and loans crisis. And uh, there were so many small family farms that were lost during that time period. And people were so angry about it that he had to start carrying a gun to work because he was afraid of being confronted or accosted. That sounds like some like badass crime family shit but not, right? Because he's literally going to a white collar job. <laughs> right. Interesting. Just a small town, little bank wow. on the corner. It was really not a badass thing. It was like this tiny pearl handled <laughs> 25 special. <laughs> oh my God. I love it even better. That's amazing. I'm glad that he survived all those crises. 
I don't remember ever, us ever talking about this. Are you an only child or do you have siblings? I have two sisters, one who is two years older than me. And then I have a, another sister who's 12 years younger. What were you like as a student growing up? Like now that you're, now that you get to play a role of a teacher, it's probably interesting to think back to like your time as a student. What were you like? Uh, I was a good student, except for something happened to me in third grade where I got bad grades. I was looking through old report cards not too long ago. I got some bad grades in third grade, but from that point on, I was, uh, you know, a 4.0 student all the way through high school and played football and a lot of other sports. I was the class president, student council president. I was on all the committees and did all the things for your resume. Hell yeah. Yeah. Did you have a yearbook superlative? Were you like most likely to or? Yeah, I was most likely to succeed. Well, they nailed that one. Yeah, I worked on the yearbook staff as well. <laughs> I was on the yearbook staff also. This it was like the best at that time. And this is something that like the youths won't understand. But like you used to have to take your pictures and get them developed on film, at least when I was in school. <laughs> and so all of our pictures had to like, we would take them with a regular camera. We would take them to be developed. We would get the pictures back a couple of days later. We would sort through the pictures and then mark them and crop like with crop marks and decide what pages they went on, how they were going to be cropped and where they appeared. But it was awesome because you were one of the in my school, we had like 1,100 people total, and there were maybe 20 people on the yearbook staff. So you're like part of this like power committee that gets to really make decisions on like <laughs> what is cemented there for the legacy for years to come. I don't think I appreciated the power that came with it. I was the copy editor, and we only had like five or six people on the whole yearbook staff. And let me tell you, the most egregious thing that I did, I look back on it now, my senior year, for the shop classes and those sorts of tech classes, they had a two-page spread. And the copy that was written in the headline for it was the easy way. The whole copy was about how this is a, a way to coast through school. And I had pictures of kids in class oh, yeah. who were doing real things. And I had such a ridiculous idea of the, of manual labor at the time and trade work that I thought that that was just a fact. It was so insulting. I feel like you and I are close in age. I'm 40. 43, yeah. <laughs> I feel like... <laughs> At the time when we were going to school, though, and this was like, I think, a trend, right? Like the push was you go to college. Like now there's like this balance of like college isn't for everyone. You escape with it or you come out with a ton of debt. You may not find a job that matches your degree. But like at the time, I feel like at least from my perspective, I remember like guidance counselors and all that. The push was like you go to college or you're not like worth anything. That's kind of like how it came down. They didn't say it in those words. Absolutely. Yeah. It was like trade schools were secondary. Like if you weren't able to get into a regular college uh, university. Well, we have something for people like you. It's a community college or it's a trade school right. or something. Uh, and it was all just like downgrading people. Yes, 100%. I feel like that was just the way of the world, though, to push people into college because we did the same thing. Like when I, I'm sure I could go back to our yearbooks or like I remember like the way that they would talk about things like we had a in our district, like a vocational center that you could go to and learn like actual trades and real skills, but they didn't talk about it that way. It was exactly as you just described it. So that's fascinating. So I know that you said you were in like all the committees and like played sports and stuff. Did you also do things like theater and writing and stuff? Or were you focused, you know, more on things like athletics and like leadership positions in student government and things like that? No, I did writing like personally. I, I enjoyed those sorts of things in classes and I would write stories and poems and things like that personally. But I did the plays they did uh, in my school. You 
got they did every other year was a musical. So the musical years, I stayed away. I had nothing to do with it. It wasn't for me. <laughs> uh, but I was interested in it. I was interested in in this in the other years. And so the in my sophomore year, I went out and I did Our Town, and I was like Constable Warren, and I had one line, and that was about it. I just walked through. And then my senior year, we did this melodrama called Wildcat Katie Brown, and I played a, an old timey prospector who is the father of the of the eponymous character and that was just a lot of fun it was pure comedy and ridiculousness that was that sort of lit a fire for me also i feel like uh snl was in one of its cycles of like kind of on the upswing when i was in high school so you had like will ferrell and sherry o'terry like people were really like i remember people watched it and talked about it a lot when i was in high school at least the last part of my high school at what point like did you make the discovery because i don't think that i made this at all until i got maybe even in college or even when i moved to chicago maybe but like that comedy was like a true performance art like it was like a thing that people do and they commit to and like perform and like make livings off of being a comedian. Yeah, certainly around that time, 95 was when that big changeover, that cast of uh, Will Ferrell and uh, Molly Shannon uh, and Mark McKinney was on that cast. But all those people came through and that was my senior year. It was a big deal. We all started watching that together, you know, on Saturday nights, we would just drink a lot of beer and keep watching that. And we became such, I was a big comedy fan all the way through into college. And I started to go out to the open Mike's in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I was going to school at the time. And I didn't understand it for a long time that I could do it as a job. But I was like, I can't keep getting this drunk and watching comedy. I have to do something about it. I either have to like go learn how to do comedy or I've got to find something else to do with my life because just this is too much. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if somebody would pay you just to get drunk and watch comedy? Yeah. I mean, that was my first true passion, yeah. I think. <laughs> <laughs> but I dropped out of college like a semester before I would have graduated because I just, I hated it. I only wanted to drink and consume comedy. And I was like, I, I got to move to New York or LA. And I had some friends who were moving to Chicago. We all worked at the Blockbuster Video in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And they were a couple that were moving to Chicago. And she said, move to Chicago with us. They have improv down there. And I was like, what's that? And she told me what the second city was. And within a few months, I was in Chicago. I want to touch on Blockbuster just for a real hot minute. <laughs> I applied to work at our local Blockbuster when we finally got one, and I like never got hired. But I felt like, I don't know if this happened at every Blockbuster, but I, I'm to this day, I'm convinced that the people that work there hoarded all of the good copies of the movies. Like, there none were ever available new releases. You know what I mean? And I know that they were just like holding them behind the counter and then probably taking them home and watching them. I have no proof, but <laughs> not I'm at my stores. Fairly certain. Never no. at my stores. <laughs> Your no. rule followers. Yes, absolutely. I made sure those were for our customers. Got to make that money. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you decide to move to Chicago with them at the time, again, like learning about Second City and all that was the plan. Like, I'm going to go here. I'm going to study comedy or was it I'm going to go there and figure out what I'm going to do? Definitely. I'm going to study comedy. I'm going to go through the Second City path. And if I don't, 
don't make it big in like three years, I'm going to move to one of the coasts. That was the plan. And I was like, within the first day I was there and I had registered for this improv workshop, this, this intensive, maybe three weeks and with who I thought was the second city. And I showed up there and found out that it was not the second city at all. It was a, a different theater group called the Players Workshop of the Second City, uh, which has connections to Second City historically. And Josephine Forsberg is the woman who, who founded that. But uh, it was in, at that state time, Rundown Theater up on North Lincoln, across from the Jewel there, uh, just south of the, uh, what was it? The Wild Goose Tavern. They had great wings there. But anyway, so I went through that and I just learned about improv over three weeks really fast. And I was still working at Blockbuster. Uh, I just transferred from Eau Claire to Chicago stores. So I kept on working at Blockbuster and I started studying like mostly short form improv. Uh, and then I, I was introduced by the other improvisers to IO, which became like my second home. So then after the immersive, is that you started like doing more, like, did you go through a regular program at IO or did you just start like kind of showing up and meeting people? And not that it's like that easy that I don't mean to um, simplify, but I did like, I'm trying to get, did you do like a formalized program through IO? Yes. I went through the, the training center as it was at that time, all the way through. And I started and quit the conservatory at Second City twice because I just lost interest both times I did it. Interesting. Can I ask why? I asked this looking because like when I've looked at the Second City's curriculum before for like writing specifically, and you know this from working in advertising agencies too, at the time, like I could never commit that much time and be sure that I would actually be able to get there. So like I would always get intimidated by the amount of like the frequency or like because they take it very seriously. Like it's a course. It's like a college course. So I'm just curious why you was it like you didn't feel like you were learning or you just didn't like their style or? For me, the uh, it's twofold. They didn't have many writing courses back when I was at Second City in the, or the early 2000s. The information in the classes, because of its connection historically to the Players Workshop, was all revisiting classes and information that I'd already learned. And it felt redundant for me to go through it again. And the only reason that so many people had gone through that program, aside from learning that, is to be seen and be known by the faculty and the, the people in that building, which I was never very good at doing. I didn't want to hang around to be seen. I was having fun performing and playing in different ways. But the main reason for me was all of my teachers at I.O., I could see perform that that week. They were always had a show. I could see them live and I could see that they knew what they were talking about. But the teachers that I had at Second City, I had never seen one of them perform. So I was like, I, why am I wasting my time with this? They don't need me to go through that program to hire me. And, you know, they still hired me as, a, as an understudy. I wanted to perform there. I don't need a diploma from that institution. You moved to Chicago. You started doing that. How long are you in Chicago on your three-year plan? Uh, I stayed there for 15 years. I'm on year 15 also <laughs> of my five-year plan here. <laughs> so it's going great. Great. Fantastic. Do you miss Chicago at all? Yes. I love Chicago. I loved it so much. And you said you have a train that goes by and I wanted to know which one because I love the L so much. I just like to ride it around. We lived in Lincoln Square. That's where we live most of the time. Yeah, that's a great neighborhood. I'm out in the suburbs now, but most of the time I felt like I floated around like in the West Loop, South Loop, Pilsen area. My goal was always to be close to work, right? And not have to deal with a commute. So no, it's a great city though. 
So how did you start working in ad agencies? Obviously you, you wrote and you did copy editing and stuff and had undergrad, but like, how did you start getting gigs in like the advertising world where we met? So in 2006, my daughter was born. Uh, I got married to my wife, Rebecca, and uh, my daughter was born. And at the time I was working as an editor for a forensic psychiatrist as I was in his office, like helping write his forensic reports on like workman's comp and, uh, and different murder cases. It was really interesting, but it didn't pay very well. And we were panicked having this newborn baby. And we were like, we're going to get out of this city. We're moving back up to where I'm from in Wisconsin. My dad had presented me with this business opportunity. He knew a guy who was looking for someone to take over his games vending business because his custom firearms business was picking up so much steam that he didn't have time to run the games vending business. Okay. So, right? Wisconsin problems. Yeah, absolutely. And we moved up there and we were living in like a model unit of a condo park that was being developed. So we were the only people that lived in this sort of remote area. And I was driving around maintaining pool tables and jukeboxes and dartboards for all these taverns around the Wausau Stevens Point area. Area and trying to grow that business. And it was the most miserable time of my life. And we were desperate to get back to Chicago. And I started sending out emails to everybody I knew from Chicago. Please, if there's a job down there that I could do, help me find it. And do you recall, do you remember Jim Toth from ARC? He was an improviser as well. And he hooked me up uh, to come in and start writing for, I think the first product project I worked on was the like Diageo for Captain Morgan. Oh, okay. Right on. It's interesting because, you know, Chicago is like the smallest big city. You literally do know, like, it's like, you know, this person who knows this person who knows. And just like you said, like, oh, he did um, improv too. And by the way, he also worked at this, like one of the biggest agencies in the city. So that's awesome. Did you meet your wife here in Chicago or did you know her and did she... Yeah, she's from Las Vegas originally. She had moved to New York to study acting right after high school. And then she moved back to La, uh, Vegas uh, and then met, moved to Chicago to study comedy and do Second City and all of that stuff as well. Oh, cool. So she wasn't a Blockbuster customer. No, she was not. Can't date a customer. <laughs> you really yeah. are a rule follower. <laughs> I am. So ad agencies, uh, you said it earlier, so I'll say it again. We worked at ARC together, I think. We worked on, if I'm remembering correctly, and you tell me if I'm wrong, because I feel like we worked on BlackBerry together, the BlackBerry phones. Yes, I think so. <laughs> right on. Yeah, I did BlackBerry. I did Morningstar Farms, and, and then I did a lot of McDonald's. I mean, great, honestly, at the time, like great accounts, right? For me, it's like 2007 to 2010 is when I'm there. You know, BlackBerry is BlackBerry. It's It was one of the biggest brands. Yeah, it was so much fun. And, and that was my first taste of that advertising lifestyle. It was fun to be working freelance, to be getting paid pretty well. I started doing some of that at uh, other agencies around town. I worked at Foot Conan Building over there. Draft FCB had a, a whole room of sort of second city people that were just like sequestered in a room cranking out the goofy Taco Bell and uh, Miller Lite sort of commercials that they could. It's fun. I look back at like agency world and like the talent of people that I got to work with, like on various projects, whether it was like writing copy for a flash banner all the way to like, you know, doing long form copy. It's like I've worked with some really, really killer talent for some of the most ridiculous work and also some of the coolest work, too. But it's funny to look back on that and think about all that. Yeah, it's a whole lifetime ago, it feels like. Absolutely. 
Don't you love getting a piece of mail? I'm not talking about junk mail or the electric bill. I mean actual mail, personally addressed to you. It's because when you get it, you know that someone took the time out of their life to think of you, write a handwritten personal message, and then mail it out. Now, imagine delivering that feeling to someone else. Well, you can with greeting cards from Colette Papery. Colette features eco-friendly, hand-designed cards with witty sayings in fun, vibrant colors for every occasion. I've been sending Colette cards to friends and family for years for everything from graduation to weddings, to birthdays, and just because. It's also the perfect place to pick up something like a notepad, a sticker, or a keychain as a gift, or to keep for yourself. And through an exclusive offer, Fast Friends listeners can save 20% off their first order of $20 or more by using the promo code FASTFRIENDS20 at ColettePapery.com. That's FASTFRIENDS20 at ColettePapery.com. Send your friends irresistible snail mail from Colette Papery. Okay, so you're still in Chicago, or you come back to Chicago, rather, from Wisconsin. You're still hanging out. You're still doing improv, but you're working at this point. You have one kid at the time? That's right. It was like 2007. We came back, and I freelanced for a while until like 2008 when the economy tanked and all these companies cut their freelance budget. So I had to grab whatever lifeboat I could find, and I did some internal marketing team copywriting for the next like four or five years. Yeah, actually, I kind of forgot about that, but yeah, it because client budgets were getting slashed left and right with the economic. Yeah, that was rough. So when do you decide to go to LA and what's the catalyst for that move? So my son was born in 2011. And in the years after that, we were very consumed with having a newborn. But once he was about four years old, and I had been working these mindless copywriting jobs for a while, I was, again, feeling so fed up with the, the day in and day out of that. And my wife and I had talked several times about making that move. We just never did it. We never pulled the trigger on it. And just one day I was like, I just started to tell people we were moving and that made us do it (laughs) because we were committed. Uh, (laughs) And then we moved in the summer of 2015. It's like you learned that from your dad. Yeah, I guess I never made that connection until now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you're just like no with that with the apartments getting rented by somebody else so we got to be out yeah that's awesome swift action so you go to la did you have a plan or were you just like we'll figure it out when we get there at this point so the improv group that i played with in chicago the reckoning the group that i played with the most we already had four of us uh, four of them were already out in chicago playing as the reckoning at io west in chicago and i knew mike o'brien was moving from new york to la uh, he and i were ended up moving at the exact same time. And we all just started to, the idea was that we'd be able to play together out there. And I was able to keep doing my copywriting work remotely for the companies I was working for in Chicago. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. God bless the internet. (laughs) So I did that until uh, for a while. And then they were like, we can't renew this contract. And I had to find work out here. And the first job I got in the industry was as an executive assistant for the CW's attempted relaunch of Mad TV. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was interesting. I really, I sat at a desk and manned a phone that never rang. <laughs> so the producer who I was executive assisting at Mad TV is this man, John Montgomery, who was former creative director of Leo Burnett. 
He's the person who Robin Williams' character in that TV show, The Crazy Ones, uh, was based on him as sort of a a neurotic ad genius, right? And uh, actually all the advertising awards that were on the set deck in Robin Williams' office on that show were John's actual advertising awards. Seriously? Yeah, like he's the one that uh, put up that billboard in in Chicago of the, the growing billboard for McDonald's where it grew grass on the billboard and it spelled those words like, that was his his whole deal. Did you ever hear the um, that John Hughes, I think, used to work at Leo Burnett back in the day? No, that's pretty fascinating. I don't know if this is true or not, um, but I heard from people that he, and this, of course, was before like the internet and like people could <laughs> like monitor all of that stuff. But he would come into the office in the morning, start all of his stuff up, make his desk like you know, look like a, like he had been working and got up to go consult with somebody or ask a question. And he would actually go and work on his projects is what I've been told. I don't know again, how accurate that is, but if so, that's genius. Yes, I absolutely. I love anybody that can get a creative project funded by a corporation. Yeah. (laughs) So you're out there in LA with some of the guys that you know already from improv. Are the scenes like similar or different than Chicago? out there? IO West at that time in 2015 felt like IO in Chicago 10 years before because so many people from that generation of comedians had moved out to Chicago. So I was moving into a place where I had, you know, I knew 500 people that lived out here already and were in this industry. And we were hanging out at the bar at IO West and you got to really get to know a lot of these people or renew those relationships with comedians, plus meet the IO West community of improvisers, these California West Coast improvisers, a lot of them more heavily influenced by UCB uh, and their style of, uh, of comedy. Uh, and I started teaching at IO West because I had taught for 10 years in Chicago. Did you meet Ryan Nemeth, who we'll get to him in a little bit, but did you meet him in Chicago while he was here or did you meet him when you were got out to LA? Because I, I can't, I don't keep track of his timeline. I don't think I met him in Chicago. I don't believe so. I, I'll feel uh, embarrassed if I did, but I think I only met him out here in uh, Los Angeles. He's pretty memorable. So I'm going to, I'll take your word on that. <laughs> if I am researching correctly, this is your connection to AP Bio is that you had been doing comedy with a lot of the folks that were involved in AP Bio from the start. Is that right? Right. So my, yeah, Mike O'Brien had written the script and for AP Bio. I got to look over an early draft of it. He asked me to, to read it for notes and that was great. And then when it went to pilot, when they picked it up, he had called a bunch of us, myself, Brendan Jennings, Holly Laurent, some of us to come in and read some of the uncast characters in that pilot in that first episode because they're doing a network table read. So they're doing first an internal table read with the studio, and then they're going to do a big sort of fancy table read with the network. And I went into the first one and I had to do the characters of Dan Decker, one of the students, and this coach character. And I had been looking at that script the the day before, and I'm like, you know, there's not any jokes on this page. This character is sort of just handing time over until the, the main character, Jack, comes in. But if it's on here, it's got to be funny. You know, there's got to be a reason that these are here. So I developed uh, this voice that I do on the show and I put that toothpick in my mouth for the table read. Uh, and when I did that character, uh, it got a huge uh, reaction in the room. And they said, do that again at the network read, if you can come to that. And I did. And the uh, Bob Greenblatt, who was the head of NBC programming at the time, said, like, uh, 
said to hire me basically as that coach to cast me uh, as that character. That is awesome. In case people haven't, so, so AP Bio, I'll say this. I had never seen it prior to all of the COVID like time spent at home. We decided to get a, a subscription to Peacock right after the new year. And my wife and I destroyed all three seasons in a couple weeks, like as was like our, our approach to shows at the time. Right. But, um, it was delightful. Like, I think I remember messaging you and being like, I cannot believe that I didn't know about this show. So like for people that don't know, do you want, do you want to give like a, just a quick premise of like what the show is? Cause I think it's incredibly relatable to somebody that grew up in the Midwest, but I also think it's just like very, very fun. I don't know. Do you want to give like a quick rundown of what it is? Sure. It's a, it stars Glenn Howerton as Jack Griffin, who plays a disgraced Harvard professor who loses his job and loses his tenure and is forced to spend a year teaching high school in his hometown of Toledo, Ohio which he does in sort of a, a symbiotic relationship with uh, the principal of the school, who's played by Pat Oswalt. They get the clout of having a former Harvard professor on their staff, and Jack gets a, a place to sort of not put his full self into his work uh, while he's strategizing to like become big in uh, academia again. If you haven't seen it, it is a very enjoyable show. I remember like when I first watched the first episode, I had done it after my wife had gone to bed and I was like, I need to hold and like have her watch this with me because it's a little like, especially I think at the beginning, it's a little maybe dark for like a sitcom right at first. And so I was like, I'm not sure if she's going to be into it or not. Like, I'm definitely going to just like watch this. But she watched it and she was like, this is amazing. Like, let's keep going. Who came up with the <laughs> start to shut up or like get to shutting what what is it he says like there's a great super cut on youtube i'm sure you've seen of all of the intros when jack walks into the right classroom. everybody start to shut up start shutting up yeah all of that stuff is um that was right in the pilot that's uh, it's so uh much mike o'brien's voice and that's how i read it when i read the the pilot that's just a, a very mike o'brien tone and you're also you're a writer on the show as well so you are on screen and also writing for, for the, how many writers do y'all have on the show? Yeah, they staffed me uh, as soon as it went to series. Uh, and we've had, it changes a little bit, but it's usually around 12 per season. For people that have never been there, what's a writer's room like? How would you describe it to people? Sure. It's a, you know, we all have our own little individual offices that, you know, are a desk and a computer and a chair. They're pretty minimal. Maybe you get a bookshelf uh, and you get a couple of, maybe you get a small couch or something or a couple of chairs for guests, but they're, they're just places to store your stuff. Most of the day is spent in a large conference room around a, a table uh, where we're using a, a whiteboard or whatever else, whatever system we have. Uh, and we are brainstorming ideas, trying to break stories for different episodes and coming up with outlines to be able to build episodes from. And so it's normally the 12 of us uh, where Mike is leading us as the showrunner and sort of directing our work. Shelley Gossman, the co-executive producer and old Chicago favorite, also takes a, a leadership role. She's like the, the right hand, the second uh, in the room. And so sometimes we break up into smaller groups to do different projects or we work on different episodes or different plot lines. But we also have, you know, a writer's assistant and script coordinators who are helping to take notes and compile and 
organized all of our, all the information we're generating. And then from there, it's like, that's where you come out and say like, this is it. This is the script for this episode. And then take it to like a read. Once we get to the point where we've broken the story and then we will create an outline that's pretty detailed, scene by scene, paragraph form, what the episode will be about. uh, And that'll have to be approved. Go through a notes process with the studio and with the network. Uh, studio first, then network. And then once those are approved, then usually one writer uh, or sometimes a pair of writers are assigned to write the first draft of that script. And then that's how you get credit as a writer if you're writing that first draft. That writer usually takes about a week to write the script, and then they'll come back uh, bring it to the room. The room does an internal read where, and we look to cut and trim and punch up jokes and just make sure everything is as it should be before we do a larger scale table read. That's very, very cool. I've always kind of wondered like what the, the step, I mean, you get like the general big steps, right? But like what that looks like. How do you take yourself as a writer on a on a show like this where you have characters and, and I, I mean most shows probably but like you have a pretty wide array of characters right you have Jack you have Principal Durbin you have Paula Pell who's playing Helen you have Heather and then like Dan Decker how do you take yourself and put yourself in the mindset of each of those different types of people and like think about like how they would look behave act what they would say like how do you take that on is that do you credit that to like all of your training in improv i think absolutely like being able to understand the comedic perspective of each character and know like this is an anthony joke versus this is uh, an eduardo joke uh, and sort of the the vein that those characters would speak in and what's the right time for them to come up but it's also matching it with the performers the actors who inform so much of those characters and then you start writing about what it would be funny to see them perform what it would be funny to see them say as those characters so you start to write for the performers as well that makes sense i one of my favorites um and i'm sure probably is like a secondary character is heather the thing I love about Heather is like, you never know what's going to come out of her mouth, right? But everything that comes out as shocking as it may be after the initial like minute or like a couple of seconds, you're like, yeah, that checks out, you know? Yeah. Allison is great. We really lucked out with those students. They, you know, they're cast for the pilot basically because to give reaction shots, they're supposed to be just a bunch of nerds that look confused and scared at Jack Griffin as as Glenn Howerton is, uh, you know, giving all of these manic speeches. And we found out slowly but surely they can deliver jokes. They're not just weird looking. They're fantastic because so many of them, they went through that sort of Nickelodeon Disney process of being kid actors. And now they're young adults and it's a whole different style and tone of performance, but they really found their footing in this more, you know, uh, more adult style of, uh, of acting. There's one. Okay. So one specific episode, which I wanted to, I, I think they're all great, but I, the thing I, one of the things I love and makes it so seem so real to like a town, like a Toledo is the episode with Katie Holmes day, because anybody that's bi- that's grown up in a small city. So like I grew up outside of Cincinnati, Ohio, and like our Katie Holmes is probably like Nick Lachey from 98 degrees who I am trying to get on this podcast at some point if he hears this and he wants to be here he can email us where did this originate because i for people that haven't seen it yet you should watch it 
uh, to me, it, it was a genius way to weave in a holiday without making it the same approach that every other show takes to a holiday episode. Yeah, absolutely. Like we, one thing that has been a challenge for us is that we try to be a sort of time agnostic on the show because uh, it's all taking place over one year, but everyone is aging. <laughs> <laughs> as we go and changing yeah <laughs> but uh we don't want to mark it with holidays uh so we never wanted to have an actual holiday episode and the uh, the the katie holmes of it all came from just reality michael bryan is from toledo and she went to a school nearby him like their age peers they they grew up at the same time in toledo and to this day she's what people talk about in toledo she's their famous person and they talk about the video that we talk about the, the how she got she was like sort of created the self tape that's the story of her being cast on Dawson's Creek she was supposed to fly out to audition for Kevin Williamson of the WB also uh writer of Scream and creator of Dawson's Creek. And she did not do it. She didn't go out there to, to audition because she was cast in her local school production of something. And she didn't think it would be right to break that commitment. So I think her mother or father had the idea to videotape an audition and mail the, the VHS tape. Uh, and she was hired from that. Wow. What a yeah, gal. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm sure other people have mailed in VHS tapes of themselves before Katie Holmes. Maybe I'm making that part up. Yeah. If she if she worked at a blockbuster, she probably followed the rules, too, though, because that's honestly that's pretty like amazing to say, hey, I'm not going to come to this big ass audition because I have a role in my local high school production. So I went to college with a girl that went to high school with Katie Holmes. And it's exactly like you said, like that's all, you know, like when she would introduce herself in class and you had to like say something funny, fun about yourself. It was like at the time when Dawson's Creek was big. So she'd be like, my name is Meredith and I went to high school with Katie Holmes and everybody would be like, oh my God, you know, like, so, and that's, I remember that like it was yesterday. So I, yeah, Katie Holmes day. I have read also that there's lobbying to make it a real holiday. I fully endorse this. <laughs> Not that it matters, but I'm on board with Katie Holmes day. That's fantastic. I'd love to see that happen. I'll tell you this, Charlie, if it happens and you want to go, I'll meet you there. I'm in. If there's like a parade and stuff. We can kiss each other's forehead. <laughs> uh, so sweet. <laughs> okay. So we talked a little earlier about Ryan Nemeth real quick. You also were in a project that he has recently been entering into multiple festivals. And um, it's a short film called Heal. It's based on the wrestling industry. My involvement with that was purely financial backing. But I believe in the in the story and... Um, think it's a great it's got a great message how did you all meet each other and how did you come to like get into that role so ryan and i knew each other we'd met a few times in passing not very well but i'd see him at uh, reckoning shows or other things at io west or at ucb and so we i was just aware of him and when i think uh, I, it was just a, a stroke of luck for me that i was cast in that part i think they had someone cast as this sort of sleazy wrestling promoter that couldn't do it or backed out or something. And again, through Shelley Gossman uh, of AP Bio, who I think maybe worked with Ryan as he was doing physical training for a lot of people for a while. And maybe she knows him from that. But I th she recommended me and he thought that was a good idea. And really quickly, I was uh, in that 
in that in those scenes with him. Yeah, it's awesome. I think it's a great. I know it's uh, doing really well, like wherever it's being entered and shown. And it's um, as somebody who has spent some time weirdly in wrestling, like behind in the create in like the creative promoter role. I think it's the message is super important. So I, I love it. I think it's a great a great movie, and I'm so glad that he was able to make it and that it's doing so well. Yeah, it was so much fun, and it is definitely like it is an important story told from you know, his perspective uh, of what he sees and feels, you know, they're uh, 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 going through that industry. It's, uh, and it was uh, fun. I, for some, I, you know, I think I get uh, cast in roles to, to sometimes play not great guys because those are fun. I like those uh, a lot. I, I did a fringe festival play a couple of years ago where I had played like a Holocaust denier. I attract those sorts of roles, I guess. I have to explain to everybody a lot of the times, like, no, I don't believe these things. <laughs> that's yeah, but that's it's probably fun to like, you know, to get out there and, and stretch your acting chops. So what else? What else is uh, what's on your like long term, like your vision board? Yeah, well, we just wrapped uh, season four of AP Bio. Uh, I was late to this recording because we just uh, were watching a cut uh, of the episode I wrote for this season uh, with uh, Dave Neer, who plays uh, Geology Dave on the show. We wrote this episode together. And uh, uh, and now that we're, that's, uh, we're waiting for that to come out uh, and hopefully get picked up for a season five, uh, I've got some writing projects of my own that I'm working on. I'm trying to pitch and sell. Do you have time to play a quick game before we let you go? Absolutely. Awesome. So this is a game that I play with most of my guests. It, <laughs> You will probably recognize it from childhood, these little paper fortune tellers. Oh, sure. So the way that it'll work is I will use this to pick a category of questions um, from this game that I have, and then I'll just pull some cards from random from that category and ask them to you. But this will be how we determine which category is your fate. First, you have to pick, and this is based purely on my love of what some may call questionable music. Uh, you have to pick from one of these four boy bands: In Sync, One Direction, Ninety Eight Degrees, or Backstreet Boys. I guess I'll go Backstreet Boys because I liked when they dressed up like monsters. <laughs> Great video. <laughs> one, two, three, or four. Four. A, B, C, or D? D. D. Okay. So your color, Charlie, is green. And the category for green is story time. You should, this should be natural for you. I'll just pick these at random and, and ask them to you. Uh, I will tell you that some of them that I've pulled from the stacks in previous recordings, they're all over the board. Like there are some of them that I'm embarrassed to say, and I'll just like toss out. So I honestly have no idea. Okay. Have you ever seen a UFO? I don't believe so. I've seen what may or may not be like a smoke monster or a winged humanoid but not a UFO. Okay. Do you want to expand on that or just let, do you want me just to let it roll? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, it's like one of those stories that it's a weird story, but there's not enough of it to even make it a story. I was driving with my younger sister once on a Christmas Eve and we were driving down highway 29 and it was dark and uh, it was a clear night entirely. And something wafted over the front of uh, the windshield uh, and uh, over our car and it was gone in a second. And we both saw it and we both like freaked out and didn't know what it was. It was black and big uh, and it totally blocked everything out for just a moment. Did it like make a noise or was it like non-solid? It felt non-solid and no noise. Interesting. That's actually maybe worse than a UFO. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is the strangest food that you have ever tried? 
I suppose maybe Don't you dare say Cincinnati chili. <laughs> That's food. <laughs> uh, no, I think probably like haggis. I don't know what that is. Oh, it's like a Scottish uh, folk meal. It's a stuffed sheep's stomach that's stuffed with like mincemeat and oats and and other sort of innards and things. Uh, I took a trip to France, England, and Scotland in high school, and that was part of the feast we had in Edinburgh. Was it good? Yes, it tasted like it was sort of meatloafy. Did you know what it was while you were eating it, or did they tell you after the fact? Yes, I knew what it was specifically because Mike Myers makes a big deal of it as his, when he plays his own father in So I Married an Axe Murderer. He yells about haggis, so it was on my mind, and I wanted, I, I definitely sought it out. That's amazing. What languages do you speak? Oh, I speak English. I've, uh, I speak some Russian. I took a year of... German in college and a couple of years of high school Spanish, but I'm not fluent in any of those. I try real hard with Russian on my Duolingo, but uh, it is incredibly difficult. What was your favorite childhood food that no longer exists? Oh, dear. There was a drink called Burple that I liked a lot. It was like a Kool-Aid and it was uh, in uh, it was in a corrugated container a plastic container that you it looked like a the size of like an orville redenbacher popcorn thing and you took the top off and you could like uh, raise it up and just fill it with water close it and shake it and you had a full like a kool-aid thing i remember burples for sure 100 percent. and then you could like play with the bottle and like make the noise right it'd be like when it was empty absolutely do you remember pizzerias those chips that were like doritos but they were like pizza flavored I remember the name, but I can't recall the product. Yeah, I miss those. I'm conflating them with maybe tater skins. Oh, also good. Also a great jingle. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Tater skins got baked potato appeal. <laughs> awesome. So this is the time, Charlie, in the podcast where we come to the uh, high pressure. <laughs> I'm putting it all out there. In the spirit of Facebook, uh, Logan Cummins has sent you, Charlie McCracken, a friend request. Do you confirm or delete the friend request? I accept this request, Logan. I cannot wait to go to Katie Holmes Day with you, and we will stop at a Skyline Chili in Fort Wayne, Indiana on the way, <laughs> and it's going to be the best road trip ever. Where can people follow you and, and keep up with what's going on, and uh, do you know at all when the fourth season of AP Bio will be out, or n don't have a date yet? I don't have a definitive date yet. I know they're, they're I, I thought maybe they were going to hold it until fall like they did last year, but I think they're pushing to get it done sooner than later, and the AP Bio official Twitter handle has changed their name to season four coming soon. So I think it's an all out push for uh, new content on Peacock. Um, so I hope it's like this summer, maybe in June sometime. But I'm on Twitter at uh, the Kraken and I guess I'm on Instagram, but you don't need to go there. I just show like things I bake. <laughs> But I will say they usually look delicious. They're very, very good. I love to be. <laughs> that is awesome. Charlie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for accepting the friend request. And I cannot wait to see season four of AP Bio and to send you messages and tell you how much I love it. Anything else from your side? Are we calling this a wrap? Uh, this is about a year old, but I have a Stitcher Premium podcast where I play Spintax the Green 
Uh, it's called, uh, which is a wizard from Hello from the Magic Tavern, which is a, a comedy podcast that I get to guest on sometimes. And I got to do this limited series called uh, I Am Spintax, the podcast, where I play along with some of my favorite comedians, most of my friends from Chicago and uh, L.A. here. Uh, and if anybody is behind that paywall, they can check that out. Awesome. So that's on Stitcher Premium? That's right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Charlie. Take care. Thanks, Logan. It's been a blast. Thanks for listening to the Fast Friends Podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for an all-new episode. Go ahead and hit subscribe so you don't miss it. You can follow me on Twitter at Logan Cummins. And if you have a suggestion on someone that I should be friends with, go ahead and let me know at fastfriendspodcast.com.